Global affairs for Canada appears to be turning on its head. Our longtime ally and neighbor, the United States, has been scolding us for trade agreements and foreign affairs policy, while at the same time cozying up to its longtime adversary, Russia. Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. Canada and Russia have had far from warm relations. There have been pockets of cooperation, but for the most part, there appears to be little trust between the two sides. It was Canada and Jean Chrétien that brought Russia to the G7, making it the G8 with Boris Yeltsin. It appeared then that Russia was easing its iron grip on its people. Under Vladimir Putin, it appears Russia is heading down an old path. The poisoning of a Russian spy and his daughter on British soil has the West giving Russia the cold shoulder. So far, more than 25 nations have turfed Russian diplomats from their embassies, and Russia has countered the same. The wild card in the whole game is U.S. President Trump. He has said he could have good relations with Putin and Russia, and in the next phrase he'll say he might not. Where does this leave Canada? Our longtime friend and ally, not to mention defense partner, is sending mixed messages. To take a look at the conflicting messages, I'm pleased to be joined by Gar Party, former diplomat with the Canadian Department of Foreign Affairs and retired director general of the Consular Affairs Bureau. And Gar, thank you so much for joining us. Nice to uh, talk to you. It's, it's interesting times for Canada on, on the world stage right now. What's your the view on the U.S. warming up to Russia while appearing to throw the cold shoulder at Canada? Well, uh, I think like the rest of the world, we're probably as bewildered <laughs> as anybody in terms of what's going on here, uh, particularly in terms of the when you get the history of, I think, of the, as far as the, uh, the Western world is concerned and its relationship with, uh, with Russia, it's largely been directed by the Americans, I mean, uh, ever since the Second World War. Uh, you know, I mean, the Americans have sort of, and we have certainly, uh, other countries, we've laid down and we've cooperated with each other in terms of a whole series of institutions in which, in effect, we have tried to uh, come together on, and those are still in effect. But I think with the election of Mr. Trump a couple of years ago, uh, you mean he's got a, a new playbook? Or I'm assuming he's got a playbook here in terms of the kind of things that he thinks that should change here, and he makes no bones about it. But uh, I think we've got to be careful here that we don't overreact to Trump, quite frankly, any more than I think uh, it's it's more fundamental that we be careful in our relationship with uh, uh, with Mr. Putin than it is uh, uh, than than with anybody. I think uh, we yeah, I think we've got a pretty good measure of Mr. Putin. He's been around now for what 16 years or so, or uh, even a bit longer, I think, in the system. And I think we've got a measure of uh, what he wants to achieve. And really, in some ways, what he's about is no different than uh, Russian policy going back two or three hundred years. And it doesn't matter whether it's the Tsar or the Soviets, or or whether it's the post-Soviet period here, uh, Russian objectives here are fairly defined and and to some extent limited. I think it's important to keep that in mind. Uh, but Mr. Putin, I uh, I think uh, thinks that there is an opportunity here to advance their agenda with someone like Mr. Trump in the White House. And Mr. Trump, of course, is not smart enough, of course, to understand what's going on. You know, you, you mentioned. Uh, uh Putin's objectives, what, what would some of those be? 
Well, I think it's basically is to uh, uh, the current one. There's a bunch of limited ones in the sense of the uh, the sanctions that are in place, the economic sanctions that are in place. I think as far as uh, uh, several actions, it's the Ukraine. If you want to go back another few years in terms of what he did in Georgia, uh, there's a shooting down of the Malaysian plane, uh, those kinds of things. And there's a whole series of sanctions in place. And those, I think, are of having some effect on the Russian economy, which is not one of the world's great economies by any stretch. And, and here, I think the difference with, with China, I think, is readily apparent. So that's his immediate objective. But I think the larger objective is to restore Russia today to the role or to its place in the world that he had during the heyday of the, when it was the Soviet Union. I think that kind of respect that goes on. And that is just not there in most parts of the world anymore. And I think he sees in terms of playing with Mr. Trump uh, at that level, I think an opportunity to uh, to achieve that again. Those would be the two that I would see the short, a short term one and then a longer term one that, uh, that that's in play here. Now, uh, and Donald Trump made no uh, no bones about his views on NATO and funding. Russia's never really been keen on NATO at all. From your perspective, does NATO have a place today? Uh, the problem that we had, I think, is that uh, in the aftermath when the Soviet Union collapsed back in '91, uh, I think uh, NATO, I think, was you know when you look go back to '47, '48, '49, in the post-war period when NATO was formed, it had a very defined objective in terms of the security of the countries of Western Europe uh, uh, in in very specific terms. But I think the in the in the euphoria that attended. Uh, you mean the breakup of the Soviet Union, I think NATO lost its way. And that's when it started to sort of or some countries started to see, well, let's give it a new role. So NATO ends up in Afghanistan, ends up in Co- uh, Kosovo. It ends up in well, Kosovo would probably be a legitimate one in, under the old terms. But it ended up in uh, Libya and places like that. And I think it lost its way. And in that sense, I, th- I think it's never been able to recover. And the Europeans, of course, have uh, have never had the same, how can I put it, the, the same view of, of the threat from Russia that perhaps uh, most of us have had. I think as being further afield from it, we can be more academic in our view of that threat. So it's those things coming together that I think is, is, has been the main problem that NATO has had. And ironically, of course, is that uh, taking on uh, Mr. Putin today uh, is that I think brings the Europeans back into the NATO fold, gives them more of the historical objective here. They feel more of a threat today than they than they have over the past 20 years. So in that sense, Mr. Putin, and in terms of, I mean, breaking the link with the Americans uh, and the Europeans, then Mr. Putin sees this as an a opportunity for a major victory as far as Russia is concerned. So all of these things come together in one, you mean, in, uh, in a very coherent way. If you, if you stand uh, far enough away from it and look in, and in terms of what's going on. And I think the important thing is not to get bogged down into some of the details that go on. And this is particularly with respect to American policy here. How temporal will the policy of Mr. Trump be, and that's why I think we shouldn't be making no large decisions 
until it, you mean, until we see the results from November. Uh, this is the real test of Mr. Trump. It will be whether or not the Republican Party can maintain its control of both the Senate and the House of Representatives in Washington. To lose both would be a major disaster for Trump. To lose one basically just takes it, it just undercuts Trump to no end. So uh, my view is that you even on the trade side of things, make no agreements in this atmosphere, but wait to see what happens in November. If Mr. Trump and the Republicans come out of that election stronger than they are today, then we're in real trouble. Gar Party is joining us on the Unpublished Cafe, former Canadian diplomat with the Department of Foreign Affairs and retired Director General of the Consular Affairs Bureau. And when we take a look at Canada and U.S. relationships, what concerns you right now about the current condition of our relationship? Uh, it's the, how can I put it? it? It is a series of individual decisions that the Americans are making, and it's particularly on the tariff side. But Mr. Trump, I don't think, understand. this is going to be the issue here, whether or not this is going to play in the November election. Does Mr. Trump carry the country with him? You mean in terms of the kind of things that he's doing from all the reports that you get in terms of the traditional supporters of the uh, of the Republican Party, uh, there's a lot of angst in terms of what he's doing, uh, particularly on the economic side and on the trade side, uh, business side, that sort of thing, and whether or not he can sustain that and do better in the election in November. If, in effect, he fails in November and the Republican Party fails with him with respect to control, Control of Congress, then in effect, I think we're into a brand new game. So I wouldn't make any, and I, I come back to the same point, mm-hmm. and I think uh, this is what the Canadian government is doing, and possibly even what the Mexican government's policy is. Let's, let's slow things down and let's wait for November. If November turns out bad for us and for the Mexicans, then you've got to make some serious decisions as what your future policy is going to be. Now, do you believe it's better to engage instead of isolate and let Russia back into the G8? Oh, no, that's just a side issue. It's of no yeah. consequence whatsoever. Those kinds of ephemeral little things, I think we would, uh, it made sense, I think, when, when we did it. Uh, you mean Russian policy, Putin was, you know, there was, uh, this was part of uh, bringing Russia into Europe. But I think you've got to remember that Russia is more than just a European country. It's a very large country that straddles both at the large, uh, into Asia, and then you're back into the game of where the, where Chinese policy should be going here. But fortunately, one doesn't see any great coherence as far as Chinese objectives in the world and what Russian objectives are. Gar, I want to thank you for joining us. You're quite welcome, Ed. Gar Party is a former Canadian diplomat and the retired director of Canada's Consular Affairs Bureau. Let's delve a little deeper into the issue and focus on Canada and Russia relations. Paul Robinson holds an MA in Russian and Eastern European Studies from the University of Toronto and a PhD in Modern History from the University of Oxford. And he joins us on the Unpublished Cafe. And Paul, first off, how would you characterize Canada-Russia relations currently? Uh, They're very poor, Um, extremely poor, in fact. I mean, Russia, I'd say Canada is one of the most hostile states towards Russia in the Western world at the moment. And what makes us so hostile to Russia? Well, I mean, there's a, a number of reasons. I think the, one of the primary underlying reasons is that we have very 
a little contact, a very little trade with Russia. So, so we don't have um, when when things go bad between east and west, Canada has relatively little incentive to um, try and maintain good relations, and we don't have a, a strong lobby which would um, try and push governments in order to maintain good relations because. Uh, our, our total trade with Russia at the moment is like a, a billion dollars each way. So that means we, we sell Russia about $500 million stuff a year and we import about $500 million stuff a year. Um, as a result, you know, if, if we wanted to, say, sanction Russia, we don't, we don't lose a, a huge amount from it. And if we like to posture and make negative statements about Russia, we don't have much to lose. Um, whereas if you say you compare it with something like Germany, Germany, German government needs to be a little bit more cautious because it has billions and billions of dollars of trade with Russia. Uh, and that creates, um, you know, important interests and institutional forces, which will uh, mitigate any, any uh, desire by the German government to, to push things in a more negative direction. Um, this kind of lobbying uh, barely exists in Canada, whereas, by contrast, there are some uh, lobbying forces which uh, uh, favor um, Western relations with Russia. I mean, the Ukrainian lobby it, it would be the primary example. Yeah, I was uh, the uh, the Ukrainian group uh, in, in Canada. I think is is basically what, what drove Stephen Harper and, and his stand on on Russia, was it not? Uh, to, to a large degree. I mean, with, with Harper, you have certain sort of um, uh, ideological certitudes, which also come into play. But um, the fact is that the Canadian government and, and Canadian um, members of Parliament of, of all parties very. Long, by and large, take their cue about Russia from members of the Ukrainian lobby. And the, and the Ukrainian lobby in Canada um, isn't really representative of, of Ukraine as a whole. It, it, it comes largely of descendants of people who came from Western Ukraine, from, from Galicia, who represent a certain um, attitude towards Ukraine and towards Russia. Um, um, and therefore, that pushes our policy in, in a very different direction. Paul Robinson is joining us on the Unpublished Cafe he is with the University of Ottawa, holding an M.A. in Russian and Eastern European Studies from the U of T, and a Ph.D. in Modern History from the University of Oxford, as we talk about Canada and Russia relations. And, and you know, you can't really talk Canada and Russia without the United States being in the middle of that. And, you know, when you look at this situation, usually Canada and the U.S. were, you know, shoulder to shoulder. But this time around, it looks like it's the U.S. and, and, and Russia are shoulder to shoulder some, in some cases when you look at issues like NATO, et cetera. Well, not really. Uh, you know, uh, Trump has said that he would like to improve relations with Russia, but in, in actual fact, if you look at what the American government has done under Trump um, towards Russia, it in fact has, has put more sanctions on Russia uh, and has taken quite a hard line towards it. So um, there's a difference here between you know rhetoric and, and, and practice, and, and, and the practice of American policy remains um, fairly firmly um, uh, hostile to Russia at this moment, uh, and it's unlikely to change. In particular, it's unlikely to change because Congress wouldn't allow it to change. So whatever Trump desires, uh, he's not really in a position to, to, to do much about it. For instance, the latest uh, round of sanctions which Congress imposed, it, it, it made it very clear that they could only be taken away if Congress approved taking them away. So Trump isn't even in a position where he can determine uh, whether these sanctions happen or not happen. So um, there, there are many uh, there are many forces in America which would would, would uh, push back against Trump trying to improve relations. You know, there were obviously there's been a lot of allegations about Russian involvement in the last U.S. election, and you know Canada's got a federal election coming up in 2019. There's a provincial election in, in Quebec coming up later this year. Do you have any concerns regarding uh, some work in, in the election from outside forces? No, no, no. I mean, I don't. I mean, obviously, you know. Uh, foreign countries uh, and, and citizens of foreign countries and foreign governments are, are always trying to influence um, 
influence us. Uh, you know, the Americans try and influence us, the British try and influence us, the French try and influence us, and the Russians try and influence us, and then that's, that's normal. Um, but I don't think one should, you know, go too far and, and always talk about these things as constituting interference or undermining democracy, because that is, that is uh, not necessarily true. And also one shouldn't exaggerate the influence of these things. Um, for instance, you know, people have talked a lot about Facebook accounts and Twitter accounts and so on. But, but actually, you know, the reach of these things, the number of people who are reading them and, uh, uh, is not that great always. And also, um, there's no really proven evidence to show that this sways people's opinions in any, any substantial way. So I think one needs to be a little bit cautious about that. Similarly, you know, there's been claims about Russian disinformation in Canada, particularly uh, regarding the story about Christia Freeland's grandfather. But of course, that, you know, it's not actually disinformation if it's true. So, you know, once again, be very cautious about this and, and not over-exaggerate all this stuff. You know, uh, we had talked about the the isolating stance of the previous Canadian uh, government, and uh, when the uh, the Liberals won in 2015, they said they wanted to more re-engage. Uh, now, Christian Freeland obviously seemed to be the wild card in that because uh, she certainly had a uh, a stance on on Russia. Is Canada right to start re-engaging more with Russia? Well, it, it did a little bit under oh, when Stephen Dion was was foreign minister. Um, mm-hmm. Under Harper, there had basically been no diplomatic contacts at all. So um, Canadian diplomats were pretty much under instructions not to speak to, to, to Russian officials at all. Um, this, uh, this stopped when um, the Liberals were elected and, and when Dion became foreign minister, uh, uh, talks uh, uh, recommenced and um, one senior member of Global Affairs Canada actually actually went to Moscow and spoke with his his Russian counterpart and and, and there has been some efforts at efforts at dialogue but efforts at dialogue is, is not really the same as, as reaching agreement on, on anything so uh, it is it is correct that we engage with Russia we have we have mutual interests for instance uh, you know in the Arctic and 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 we we have to talk to the Russians about these things it makes no sense to not to talk to them about them. It, 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 we really shoot ourselves in the foot if we, if we do that. But uh, we're not really moving very far in, in that direction, it has to be said. Um, you know, it, it's sort of, we now are willing to go into the same room, which we weren't willing to do previously. But once we're in the room, we, we won't actually do anything. So I, I wouldn't say, you know, huge progress has been made, but it's not quite as bad as it was on, on, on the Hubbard. Now, you, you, you bring up the Arctic, and, and, and uh, former Prime Minister Stephen Harper really big on, on the Arctic and getting getting as much acknowledgement about Canada in the Arctic as possible. Obviously, considering his disdain for for Putin, you think that was like a preemptive a preemptive strike to say that you know Canada is here in the Arctic first? Because I really haven't seen uh, Justin Trudeau pay much attention to the Arctic since the election. No. I mean, the Arctic is one of those things where Canadian government sort of goes in waves of sort of pretending to show interest and not showing interest. But whenever they, you know, they pretend to show interest, such as under Harper, it tends to be a lot of rhetoric without any real substantive action. Right? So, so Harper talked a lot about developing the Arctic, but when really nothing very much, much came of it. Now we're having rather less emphasis put on it. But um, the actual reality of, of, our, of our posture there isn't, isn't desperately different. From your perspective, then, what will it take to make Canada-Russia relations warmer? 
I think, you know, a, a large amount of time. I don't, I don't see um, very much happening in, in that direction um, in, in the conceivable future uh, for a number of reasons. First of all, because, you know, I think attitudes are very, very firmly set, you know, and you know, barring some, you know, revolution in Russia, which would bring a whole new government in, you know, we're not going to change our attitudes, but that's not going to happen. There's not going to be, a, you know, a regime change or something in Russia. So, so, so um, we're stuck with that. At the same time, you know, things which are getting in the way of good relations like Ukraine, I, I don't see that being resolved anytime soon. Uh, the Ukrainian war is likely to continue in its current low-level uh, mode for, for quite a while. Um, no one I know can see any uh, resolution in the near future to that. Um, so, so really, you know, these things are going to continue to be there um, for quite some while, and um, all we can really do is, is just have patience and, and begin to sort of slowly re-engage. If we, if we can start, you know, let's not try and do something big. There's not going to be some big settlement which will lead to a drastic sudden change in our relations. But what is possible is some, um, you know, very gradual small steps which can slowly push us in the right direction, you know, such as, you know, beginning to talk to each other a bit more about uh, mutual interest in the Arctic, um, about, you know, uh, issues to do with cyber and terrorism and so on. And if we can slowly, slowly re-engage on those things, then, you know, perhaps over, you know, a decade or more, we might be able to build some momentum, but it's not going to be rapid. Paul, I want to thank you for joining us. Okay, thank you. Paul Robinson holds an M.A. in Russian and Eastern European Studies from the University of Toronto. The other perspective is U.S.-Russia relations, which seem to have taken a turn with Donald Trump. And joining us to discuss that is Oral Braun, Professor of International Relations and Political Science at the University of Toronto, as well as a research associate for the Center of Russian and East European Studies and the Center for International Studies at the U of T, and with the Monk School of Global Affairs and public policy. Now, Oral, much was made of Donald Trump's performance in Helsinki with Putin. What was your perspective? Unquestionably, the optics were bad. I mean, here was the president of the United States not standing up to Russia. This is after overwhelming evidence that Russia tried to interfere into the 2016 elections. And uh, the president of the United States was uh, apparently giving Russia a pass. However, the reality that there was a great deal of difference between Mr. Trump's rhetoric and Mr. Trump's policies, and often Mr. Trump's rhetoric is so provocative, it is so controversial, that we tend to miss uh, any kind of reasoned assessment of what the policies are. And those policies are important because those policies are affecting the international system they have an impact not only on uh, American-Russian relations, but also on Canada's strategic position in our national interests. You mentioned the difference between the rhetoric and, and his policy. Can you give me an example? When we listen to the rhetoric, he, uh, Mr. Trump almost seems to be, if not a captive of Russia, someone who is fascinated by Mr. Putin, uh, seems to admire Mr. Putin, and is unable to stand up to Mr. Putin. When you look at the policies that are pursued by the United States, these are very tough policies on Russia. The sanction regime has not been lifted. If anything, it has been strengthened. But much more impactful when it comes to Russia than the sanctions are the policies on the American military, the military alliance, and 
on energy. Russia is not a superpower. This is one of the things that we need to be realistic about. Mr. Putin makes a great deal of noise, let us say, in international politics. He has caused a good deal of harm in the case of Ukraine, as well as in Syria. But that still does not make Russia a country with only about 143 million people, a huge demographic uh, time bomb, uh, a unidimensional economy that in nominal terms is no bigger than that of Italy, that does not make Russia by any stretch of the imagination a superpower except in the case of nuclear weapons, and that is the only exception. And so Russia is a regional threat, but it is not a global player in the true sense. It is not a superpower. It is not likely to become one. It cannot really compete with the United States if the United States is engaged. It cannot, it cannot compete with uh, the EU if the EU is engaged. So what have been Mr. Trump's military policies? Well, in 2018, Mr. Trump has instituted such a sharp increase in defense spending that the increase is almost the size of the entire Russian defense budget. Russia can't compete with that. Worse from the perspective of Moscow, Mr. Trump, sometimes in a very brutal and vulgar fashion, has pressed the European states to spend more on defense. And they are, not as much as the Americans want. Certainly it's not going to be 4%, but eight countries now are spending 2%. By 2024, there will be two-thirds of the NATO alliance will be spending 2%. That is on top of the huge American increase in defense spending. That is not good for Russia. That is a nightmare scenario for Russia. It takes away any advantage Russia would have in exerting military pressure. When it comes to energy, Russia depends very heavily on energy exports. Russia exports basically three things, energy, weapons, and corruption. Energy represents about 60%. Energy prices need to be high to keep the Russian economy afloat because they're not diversified. They are not competitive. United States is becoming a very major energy exporter. Mr. Trump, for better or worse, and many people think it's for the worse, has walked out of the Paris Accords. He's lifting restrictions on oil and energy exploration uh, on the landmass of the United States, in sensitive areas in the Arctic. That is bringing more energy on the market, and he is pressing very hard for the United States to export energy, including liquefied natural gas to Europe. There have been deliveries now, more symbolic than substantive, but uh, they point the way to the future. LNG uh, deliveries from the United States to Poland and to Latvia, that can dramatically, down the line, alter the dependence that the European countries have on Russia and Russian energy, removes a lot of the Russian leverage. That, again, is very bad for Russia. In the case of Ukraine, whereas the previous administration had refused to sell defensive armaments to Ukraine, and the Germans were very opposed to that, Mr. Trump is selling defensive armaments to Ukraine. That, again, makes it much more difficult for Russia. So if I was sitting in Moscow, I would say it's wonderful to hear the warm praise from Mr. Trump. But when I would be looking at Mr. Trump's policies, if I were in charge of the Kremlin, 
I would be very worried. Oral Braun is uh, joining us on the Unpublished Cafe, professor of international relations and political science at the University of Toronto, as well a research associate of the Center for Russian and East European Studies and of the Center for International Studies at the U of T. You know, uh, Donald Trump has taken taken some shots at NATO, and, and NATO Russia has long viewed it suspiciously. How, from your perspective, how relevant is NATO today? It is relevant because NATO from the beginning was not only a military association, but also a political organization. NATO has been adaptive. It has had remarkable longevity. It is the longest lasting alliance in human history. It was uh, a key factor in the Cold War, and it has now moved out of area. It is active in Afghanistan and, and elsewhere. So it is a worthwhile organization, and it would be most unfortunate if it would uh, uh, dissolve or if we were damaged. And certainly Mr. Putin would like to see NATO damaged or impaired as much as possible. When we look at how Mr. Trump has dealt with NATO in terms of rhetoric, it seems extraordinarily harsh. But the substance of what he has said is not that different from what was said under the Obama administration or the George W. Bush administration. And that is that the Americans do not want to carry the level of burden that was justified in the early years of NATO when Europe had to recover from the war. The idea was that the United States would provide an effective defense umbrella for the European states while they solidified democracy in the case of the former fascist and Nazi states and would build up their economies. But once they recovered, they would carry their fair share. They haven't done that. Uh, it is not possible for United States to think of the defense of Europe to be more important to Washington than it is to Berlin or to Paris. And when the Germans, who are now very wealthy, they have the largest economy in the EU, they spend only 1.24% on defense, and they profit from all sorts of deals with the Russians, including building these natural gas pipelines, then there are some important questions to be asked, which have been asked before. Why are they not contributing more in order to fulfill their own needs rather than expecting the Americans to pay for uh, their defense uh, or the overall defense of the continent while they make all sorts of profits? Now, in the case of Mr. Trump, he has put it in such a confrontational fashion that it has alarmed the Europeans. But the result is that they are doing something about it. They are increasing defense spending. And so as much as one may find the, the approach by Mr. Trump very disconcerting, some would say even reprehensible, as much as one may justifiably be concerned about possible damage to the alliance, the results on the ground are impressive in terms of developing greater capacity. And Russia does present a regional threat. The Baltic states do have reason to worry. Poland does have reason to be con concerned. And so enhancing uh, European defense, getting a greater contribution is essential, and that is happening. Uh, and when we look at the uh, Brussels Declaration, 
that declaration was incredibly tough on Russia. It also uh, laid out the contours of enhanced defense, a capacity to rapidly deploy significant forces, which would be more than just a tripwire. I mean, we have some forces uh, in uh, uh, Latvia, Canada is heading uh, a uh, uh, kind of battalion-sized uh, unit, but we have something like 450 troops. Uh, they're excellent forces, and I think they're among the best in the world, but they are not much more than a tripwire. Now NATO is moving towards having more than a tripwire, but an actual defense capacity uh, in the Baltic states, in Poland, and that is pretty significant. And so uh, if there had not been, let's say, this Helsinki meeting, and people just looked at what happened in Brussels and looked at the final declaration, there would have been a good deal to be encouraged by. Oral, I want to thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Oral Braun is a professor of international relations and political science at the University of Toronto. As well, he's a research associate of the Center for Russian and East European Studies and of the Center for International Studies at the University of Toronto. Now, our question this week on the Unpublished Cafe. Should Canada embrace Donald Trump's approach to relations with Russia? Yes or no? You can go to unpublished.vote to cast your ballot and make your voice heard. I want to thank our guest today on the Unpublished Cafe, Gar Party, former Canadian diplomat. Paul Robinson's a professor at the University of Ottawa, as well holds a master's in Russian and Eastern European Studies from the University of Toronto, and Oral Braun, professor of international relations and political science at the University of Toronto. Thanks for listening to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. <laughs>